while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio show, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice. My guest today is Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D. He's the Goddard Space Flight Center Chief Knowledge Officer. First of all, welcome back to the show, Ed. How are you? Great. Thanks, Marcello. It's good to be back. Always fun to talk with you. Uh, Same here, really. Speaking of which, we're doing this show today because I just picked up the phone. I was so excited about the news about the landing on Mars that I just thought I'd call Ed and say, how are you doing? And that conversation was so enlightening, I said, well, let's do a radio show, so here we are. Uh, But first, let me tell you a bit more about Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D. The Office of the Chief Knowledge Officer, known to some as OCKO, is responsible for assuring that the center operates as a learning organization. It is responsible for policy and guidance on lessons learned, knowledge management, and learning practices. Now, Ed can break that down for us, but I think it means things that are going on on NASA, he wants everyone to learn from them, both inside NASA and around the world. So that's my oversimplification, we'll ask Ed. The OCKO is led by Dr. Edward W. Rogers, our guest today, Goddard's Chief Knowledge Officer. I never get tired of saying that, Ed. Ed has uh, held this position, by the way, since 2003. So, Ed, despite that little cough you seem to have, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Yes, I've got a nice warm cup of tea here. I feel like I'm having a fireside chat with you. (laughs) Well, good. Well, we kind of have that anyway. (laughs) Even if you don't have a cough. I was telling Ed before we came on that the more I thought about today's show, the more questions I got. So let's let him do some talking here. NASA's InSight lander has touched down on Mars. By now, I hope the whole world knows about that. And we're going to talk about some of what that means. For instance, Ed, when did InSight launch from Earth on its mission to Mars? Uh, so the, it's a very exciting mission, of course, and everyone loves to talk about Mars because of the possibility that there could have some 
point been life there or maybe still remnants of life there. I mean, that's the, the public fascination is almost limitless. Mm-hmm. This particular mission launched back in May, May 5th, launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base out in California and took, as you can do the math, if you'd landed on uh, yesterday, day before, then it was, uh, you know, six and six and a half months it took to get there. Yes. Wow. That's a long journey. And it's it's like, uh, but what do you guys do? You launch something, you go, okay, we'll see uh, what happens and get back to you in six or seven months. Uh, well, it's not exactly see what happens. There's a, It's a long journey when they are typically doing check-ins every day. I mean, it is a, it is a, a 500 lap race, so to speak, mm-hmm. where, you know, you're just checking every day, making sure you're on progress, you're on track. It's a, 300 uh you know uh million mile journey Mm, mm -hmm. and so it it's it doesn't take much to get off course i mean you look at mars when you go outside in your backyard you see a little dot yes (laughs) i mean it's a long ways away long ways (laughs) away and you and your and your accuracy has to be really good so they're they're constantly making sure it's on track in other words there's a team that checks in every day and communicates with satellite but the activity is relatively low compared to the launch, which is obviously a big excitement, yes. and the landing, which was uh, also a big excitement. Those are the, I mean, it's not any different really than flying an airplane in the sense that the most dangerous parts of flying an airplane are the landing and takeoff. Yes. It's, yes. When, they, it's when the aircraft is stressed, it's when there's possibilities of accidents happen. The cruise part is relatively uneventful. You get up there, you put it on autopilot. Sure, the pilot still makes sure he's heading to England and yes. not, doesn't end up in South Africa. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's relatively uneventful uh, usually. And so, but this is a particularly long journey to reach uh, Mars. And in fact, that's one of the biggest challenges of sending people to Mars. Is that's a very long journey. If anyone's seen the movie, you know that that whole time of months and months and months yes. played lar- largely into the drama. You know, since we are talking about the distance, the distance between Mars and I guess between Earth and other planets as well, actually is not constant. Can oh no, no, it varies dramatically. Yes, tell us about that. Well, I mean, in a simple sense, I mean, without getting into a detailed astronomy lesson, I'm not an astronomer or a planetary scientist, but the Earth and Mars both orbit the Sun, but they're in the Mars orbit is larger than the Earth orbit. It's farther away from the Sun. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it also is at a, a, a different speed. So sometimes Earth and Mars are on the same side of the Sun, and sometimes Mars is on the opposite side of the Sun. Mm-hmm. And so it would be very far away from the Earth if it was on the opposite side of the Sun, and it would be relatively close if it's on the same side of the Sun. Launches try to take advantage of when they know when Mars is going to be relatively close to mm-hmm. launch in a way that so you shorten that distance as much as possible. So there are better seasons and years and times of year to launch when you can reach Mars in a few months, or you might take, you know, it could be six months or it could take 18 months. Mm. Well, then it all goes into what we're going to be talking about all day today, Mm. I guess, and that is all the planning that must go into this, the detail. And I, of course, was being flippant earlier when I suggested that everybody, okay, it's launched, let's go home and have coffee. I know better than that. <laughs> but can Insight send back photos of, of Mars to Earth? And so it... Insight is a lander. Uh-huh. So it's not a rover. It's not going to 
move around once it gets there. Mm -hmm. So it's landed and that's where it's going to stay. So it'll take some photos, but they won't look that much different day to day. It's not exploring territory. Gotcha. And it's not the primary mission to take photos. They're more of a interest thing and a safety and a security and for management to make sure you know what's going on, diagnostics, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Imagery is always interesting to people, whereas the rovers took different pictures every day as mm -hmm. they crested over a hill or, or took on a new landscape, you know, that's sort of exciting. And imagery was a big part of their mission to see what Mars looks like and really learn the surface geology. InSight has a different mission to land there and kind of do a as they've used the terminology, a checkup. It's like mm. going to the doctor's office and you sit down in the chair and then some things are done to you and we kind of, then you have a conversation and you about your health. Mm -hmm. that, that's much more the imagery that they've used with this mission because it's in, it's in one place. It's going to land, sit there and stick its arm out, dig in the soil, uh, dig down. It's going to put out a seismometer to measure the magnetic variations that go on in Mars. And it's going to try to measure the magnetic pole orientation mm. of Mars. So, so you think of it as like taking your pulse, taking your blood pressure, and, and asking you to put your cross your legs and whap you on the knee and see if your leg kicks. I mean, you know, the kind of things doctors do in the office. Mm. And, and you get a good insight into the, which is the name of the mission, yes. insight into the health of the planet. How does this planet function, you know, electromagnetically and yes. thermally? Wow. Can you, I mean, you've mentioned before, uh, if I haven't said today, that uh, Ed's been on the show two or three times, and I always love having him back, and it's always enlightening. But you've always said that it takes years. NASA thinks in terms of decades for missions. Can you give us, uh, bring this back to Earth size if I can, take us through an overview, if you could, of NASA planning and launching and, and landing of a mission such as uh, uh, this most recent one, uh, mission to land on Mars? So that's a great question, Marcello, and I think people often focus in, once it comes on TV, like say the mission launched, that might have been a news item. Mm. The landing six months later might have been a news item. If it makes some discovery a few months from now, that'll be a news item. But but the history of this mission goes back on the, yes, decades. Mm. Uh, and uh, it takes a long time to plan for what we should be looking for, what would be worth spending. This mission was, I think, 800-some million dollars. What would be worth spending that kind of money to go there, take the risk, the chance, and then if it works and we discover something and say, well, that was worth it. We now know science and information that will help us with the next step. So that, that's a long debating process. There's a formal process that NASA sponsors that are called decadal surveys, literally 10 years, every 10 years, they gather the science community. And there are different ones, ones for astrophysics, one for planetary science, one for earth science. So they focus on their area of, of, of space science. And the scientists from all over the world, mm -hmm. NASA sponsors it, but NASA does not run it. Mm -hmm. Since we're not, we don't make the decisions. This large body of scientists, the community, get together and debate, as you might imagine, quite yes. vigorously, yes. what should be the priorities that uh, that astrophysics say, or planetary science in this case, would really like to know next on our journey to understanding the universe and parts of it that we, that we inhabit. 
And so they write up this decadal survey, as it's called, and it prioritizes. And then NASA takes that list and starts working down the list. Mm. It says, okay, so if this is the priority, we'll focus on that and we'll and then uh, then the concept starts to take shape. So that took years. Mm-hmm. And now you spend maybe another few years developing concepts and you might develop competing concepts. Say you wanted mm. to go to Venus and it was say go detect something. Well, that's hard to do. So you might come up with several different proposals that we could send parachute thing in, we could send a, a crawler in, we could send a a flyby that dips in and out of the atmosphere, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. actually land. So you could have different different schemes for trying to get the same scientific information that's being sought. And and those would play out for a while. And that mm-hmm. may be another couple of years to kind of see which scheme or which concept proves to be doable, will achieve the science, doesn't require some, you know, miracle happens here in the formula kind of in an equation okay we can imagine we could actually do it and it's reasonable cost isn't going to you know suck the whole budget up mm. and and then and then it goes into the process of becoming a mission and a project and mm. then the project itself might take four or five years to build and then in this case six months or pluto even longer took year you know more than a year several years to reach there mm. and then you collect data and then you analyze data so by the time you get all done from the beginning of, you know, a, as they say, a gleam in you know somebody's eye yes. to where your kids graduated from college, you know, 20 years have gone by. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and that's how and that's why it takes long. But most of that is behind the scenes of the public. Yes. That's what I was saying. The yeah. public sees when something goes boom or, <laughs> or some amazing thing is discovered, some picture that they can actually see and understand. And that's fine. So, but NASA keeps working all the time. And I appreciate that answer and the way you gave it because the way people work at NASA, I've met a few, a very few, but I have met them, and they are as dedicated to what is going on every day, every day. They're very dedicated. It's really, I mean, I can't stress enough that it's such a wonderful place to work. People are so dedicated to the mission, so to speak, and mm-hmm. which is very, you know, broad and has many pieces. Yes. But as you said, they're, they're here to work and to get things done and to uh, really achieve and learn things that benefit all of uh, humankind, yes. which is just a, a wonderful place to spend your, spend your career. Yes. Uh, and learning being uh, one of the operative words there. They, they are uh, what I love. You know, there are a lot of geniuses, let's face it, at NASA. <laughs> uh, and yet everybody's learning and wanting to learn, hungry to learn more. Uh, you know, they are. So as you introduction, your introduction about uh, my position being in the chief knowledge officer, I mean, so my focus, I mean, it's always fun talking about science and what NASA achieves as we are today. Mm-hmm. That's not what my office does. Scientists do a wonderful job in their in their whole field, as you know, mm-hmm. of publishing results. And there's many journals and, and NASA is well plugged into that yes. for passing along scientific information or things we learn about the Earth or the solar system, etc. And and that's sort of the learning aspect of the results, the products of what we do. Mm. When you talk about my office and learning, it's more about how we do our work. Mm. What are we learning about how we manage this mission or this project or managed ourselves that was either good and that was a good thing, we should do more of that, or, hey, this didn't work out so well, or it caused an inefficiency, or it caused a delay, or some, you know, we went down a rabbit hole, chased something. What can we learn from that and try mm. to avoid that next time? It's more about how we do our work 
that I'm focused on mm-hmm. working along within NASA, which is which is equally as important because sure. we, we don't have money to waste, mm-hmm. we don't have time to waste, and we are uh, using taxpayers' money. We should be we should we should be accountable for it and make the best use possible of it. You know, we probably should go to a break, but this is just too interesting. And I'm I just like to throw this out because, as you say, we are focused on the big exciting moments without knowing how much goes into it but while all of this is happening and, and all of the television and media coverage of uh, insight landing on mars we have astronauts on the international space station right now yes even as we speak yes mm-hmm. e- exactly so they're up there and uh, we, we want to give them a shout out they're not forgotten but, no, but that's a good point. That they, the, the, the public doesn't see anything change day mm-hmm. to day with astronauts on station, even though it's an amazing accomplishment day by day to think that we've had humans living in space for years. Yes. Continuously, you know, changing over. And so when people talk about living on Mars or going to the moon, we've, we've been living in space. Humans mm-hmm. have been living in space for years. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a laboratory, understood, but still, it's a laboratory, and we're proving that it can work. And so that kind of is a different level of interest when the public than than some uh, splashy new thing. And so, but that's fine. That's the way it is. We yes. we get that. We just keep working on our stuff. I just wanted to point that out. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wonder. Um, <laughs> this may be silly. Did the astronauts at the space uh, station uh, get a bird's eye view of what was going on in Mars? Is that too silly? Uh, yeah, I don't think they would see anything more than you would see. The distance okay. from here to Mars is, is the same as from, is from the space station, <laughs> relatively speaking. Um, okay. they, uh, they probably could look down and smile at the Earth and think of how many people were being happy together all around the world yes. on one one joyous thing for at least a brief moment. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's how we'll end this segment with our guest today, Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., the Goddard Space Flight Center Chief Knowledge Officer. We'll be right back. Stay with us. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music, featuring vocal artist Julia Wade singing Beautiful from her new CD, Sunday Morning. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord the earth. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Yes, the Lord is greatly to be praised. Honor and majesty are before him. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Program. My guest today, Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., 
Goddard Space Flight Center Chief Knowledge Officer. We are talking about, well, we're talking about the universe. How's that? We're talking about, of course, InSight, the lander that touched down on Mars. But mostly we're talking about what goes into that, beyond the headlines and the splash. And, you know, there's so much that goes on every single day. And we've been chatting even about, in case you didn't know, uh, how the distances between planets and Earth change because of how they revolve and so forth. Anyway, it's been a marvelous first segment. Let's jump into the second. I think pretty much Ed jumped ahead of my uh, significance of the global benefit in that making it clear that what NASA is doing, uh, including InSight, is uh, an international mission. Do you want to say any more on that, Ed, before we go on? Oh, well, the scientists that are involved in the instruments are from other countries. I mean, one of the key scientists is from France, who's running the uh, probe of seismometer and stuff. So, I mean, these are these missions are very typically have cooperation from around the world in different different capacities. That's that is more the rule than the exception now for space science missions. And I think also, if I may, Ed, suggest I'm always impressed when when one uh, looks a little deeper to find out the nationalities of uh, the scientists who are involved, that many times when uh, countries are at odds with each other in other areas of their uh, life on, on Earth, in space, that disappears. What are your thoughts? It does. Uh, I mean, we're still using... You know, even Russian vehicles to ferry equipment and people to the space station and back. We have partnerships with Japan, Europeans, even people from Brazil, other India. These are all going on. And uh, there does seem to be an element of, you know, the, the pursuit of science and knowledge kind of rises above some of these things that otherwise, as you mentioned, get in get in between us mm-hmm. here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and it is refreshing to see uh, and to see people uh, cooperating quite uh, quite well. I mean, because again, they have a they have a clear mission and goal, and everybody wants to get the the science and the new knowledge as uh, as easily as possible. And it's hard. So when you have a hard task, uh, you get you get focused. You need to work together. To, you know, we're not going to get anywhere you know, rowing in different directions because mm-hmm. we, we're in the same boat. <laughs> exactly. And when you see the product that is produced by this uh, international unity, you can't help but hope it spills over into other areas of our relationships. But, okay, this is a, a short question which, which we could talk about for a month, but can you give us a bit of insight aha, uh, into how many people and job titles and positions go into the the prep for such a mission as InSight? Uh, well, over, as we were talking in the first segment, now there's this, this mission, if you will, the mm-hmm. concept takes years from gestation, you know, conception to gestation to actually becoming a project and then actually getting funding and then actually getting built and finally getting launched and operated. And so people, there are some people who might stay from beginning to end, and they would primarily be the key scientists because they would have formulated the questions that drive it, and in a sense, becomes their child. That's not always the case, but that's most often. And there might be a few key individuals, design engineers, or people who are critical 
to designing certain critical components of it. So they may, a person who has the design developed for a certain detector or instrument might also spend many years on, on, and I've seen people like that. But there's hundreds of people that would come and go, so to speak, from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Either their career ends and they move on, or they move somewhere else, or they get pulled to another project, or even more commonly, they do their part, so they build their piece of it. Their piece is now built. They go off to build that piece or their, their expertise on some other mission. Their, their work is kind of done, and someone else takes it and puts it together with the other pieces and you know actually assembles the final spacecraft. And so many hundreds of people would have touched any one of these, if not a thousand over mm. that many years, mm -hmm. would have touched a mission like this. But what we see at the end, and I think you People who've looked on the news have probably seen pictures of a control room with, you know, 20, 30 odd people at terminals, you know, yes. jumping up and yes. shouting yes. because it landed. And the, there are teams of people in that numbers of typical engineers and operators who actually will operate the mission and they will stay with the mission like they have put there with the rovers for years, mm -hmm. operating that on a daily cycle. And there'll be, you know, there'll be dozens of people that are involved in that for many years. And we're primarily talking about the NASA people, or in this case, inside the folks out of the Jet Propulsion Lab in California, which is part of Caltech, but works as a center with closely with NASA for our work, which we're in long-term great partners. But there's also many, many contractors. We, you know, people all over the country who are building parts and components and pieces and assembling these things. We we don't by any means do all of this work, you know, right at a NASA center. Mm -hmm. You talked about people have been living in space. Human beings have been living in space for years, but InSight is also not the first time that we've landed on Mars, is it? No, uh, we've landed rovers on Mars and landers on Mars, but Mars is hard. Yes. You know, only 18 out of 25 missions to Mars have succeeded, which is, you know, a little more than half, but some have uh, missed their mark entirely, and we've lost some missions to Mars. We've been very successful with landing. I think we've only had one unsuccessful landing. But there are there are equally important missions, back to your point about things that go on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that it's so, it looks easy to go and explore Mars is that we've got satellites orbiting Mars and have had them for, for years and years that act as relay stations. So mm. the little rover sitting on Mars or this InSight spacecraft doesn't have to take with it a huge transmitter to transmit back to Earth. Mm -hmm. It only transmits to one of these satellites, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter or Maven spacecraft or others that are orbiting Mars that have that have the power to, to receive a signal from a uh, you know, instrument on the surface of Mars just up to that satellite or that's circling Mars, and then it transmits that information back to Earth. And so that uh, capability, which has been in place for many years now, makes all these other little uh, adventures possible. You couldn't do that. Mm. Uh, you would, you would, and so, and they've even gone to the extreme now, as if you follow the part of this mission, of sending these microsats or cubesats along with Insight as a test. Hmm. And uh, they, they they completed that already. It was a technology test. They wanted to just see if this would work for a few odd million dollars. They throw these literally, they're literally the size of a shoebox, hmm. uh, little satellites uh -huh. that just tagged along for the ride and then disappeared off into space, but took measurements, communicated with these 
reconnaissance uh, satellites and their signals were transmitted back to Earth, just proving that you could do this. Yes. And so the whole system is what has to work together to make it work. And that's, uh, of course, part of that part that's not seen because there's no news about, oh, the reconnaissance yeah. orbiting satellite of Mars functioned <laughs> for another good week. I mean, that's not news. <laughs> yes. But the, the fact that it's the size of a shoebox should be news. That's impressive. Well, these new ones were, yeah, that got some attention, but they were, they were test cases ah. of these uh, CubeSats. And that's, we're going to see a lot more of that probably in the future, both in Earth uh, missions as well as uh, other uh, outside of our Earth uh, system. You've already answered then, and my, my second or follow-up to that was, uh, how did the preceding missions prepare the way for insight? But I guess you pretty much covered that. Wow. As I said before we came on, I'm happy to have you on the show today, but I know you were planning on being in India. Remind us what you do in India and why you were hoping to go earlier this year. Well, that's very nice of you. Yes, I um... I do enjoy going to India. Uh, as you may know, before I joined NASA, I was a professor and taught business students. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the 15 years I've been at NASA, I've looked for opportunities to maintain my teaching uh, capability. And I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to teach the last 10 years in a prestigious program at the Indian School of Business. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an MBA-like program. And so I've been going there for the last 10 years to teach in this course. And I, yes, I'm scheduled to leave tonight and uh, going to be teaching uh, two terms this year, which will take a little longer because the school has expanded and the course I teach is quite popular. And so they wanted to make it available to all the students. And that's going to take a little longer. So hopefully I'll be on my way later uh, this evening. Excellent. Well, we wish you bon voyage, that's for sure. Tell us about a couple of the other uh, launching sites. Wallops has always fascinated me. There's a number of launch sites that NASA uses, but the only launch site that NASA owns is the one in Virginia at the Wallops Flight Facility. Mm. Uh, the other launch sites, the most famous ones, of course, are Kennedy, Cape Canaveral, which is an Air Force base, yes. and an Air Force launch site, which NASA has long used and partnered with. Mm -hmm. And then this uh, particular mission, InSight, was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base out in California. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other places where uh, NASA launches from some temporary. We, have, we can launch... Uh, rockets from Kwajalein out in the middle of the Pacific, an island. We can launch rockets from Alaska. They go to Australia and launch balloons. And uh, and so lots of different places, depending on... And then, of course, there's cooperation with the Europeans who launch, you know, uh, from from Africa, uh, or even Indians who launch from down in the, in the Indian subcontinent. So different places around the around the Earth give you different trajectories and placements and are more optimal depending on where you're trying to put your satellite. Mm. Um, before we go, tell me what it's like a, a typical day for the chief knowledge officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center. You. There must be many meetings, debates, round the table. What is that like for you? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure there's such a thing as a typical day. It's, <laughs> it's a very interesting job. Some days are spent analyzing presentations and documents to try to piece together what, what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And then some days are following up, going and talking to the people on those projects and missions to make sure we, we have the story correct because the facts that may be documented, there's always more to the story. Mm -hmm. 
especially when you're trying to understand how did we manage this? How did we either overcome some obstacle or challenge or setback? Or how did we get into a situation where we, we experienced the setback, a delay, say a cost overrun or, or something something broke, something didn't work as expected, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of time spent looking into those. I wouldn't say investigate as much. It's not investigate in the sense that we're looking for some smoking gun or something like that. That's mm-hmm. both an investigation. We're really trying to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so one of my mantras, if you will, is if you don't understand how you made a decision, mm. You, you have very little chance of learning anything from it. Mm-hmm. Your biases will overwhelm you in hindsight, and you will reinterpret it to fit the reality of the post situation. So unless you're able to actually understand how you made the decisions that you made, and then can analyze them in light of the decision process itself, will we have any chance of learning and improving? And so that's kind of my goal is kind of getting with folks and then I end up often meeting with the directors or the leaders and, and kind of communicating that, look, this is how we got into this situation. Here's what we did or what was unexpected or what we didn't anticipate. And here's what we should do to try to anticipate or plan or manage these things a little better in these other missions and, and, and pass that around. So it's a very hands-on kind of job. Mm-hmm. The work I do is not anything like someone might imagine a, a, a lessons learned mechanical system we have those systems Mm -hmm. and we use them for parts safety procedures design issues you know very technical thing we're we're very good at that Mm -hmm. the part i do is how we did it and how can we do it better and that requires some insight to use Mm -hmm. our favorite word of the day yes and it requires understanding and it requires communication which requires a lot of conversations so it's it's a lot of fun Mm. uh and i've been uh, i've been told ed we can go to Mars. We can. We, we have another mission that's getting ready to approach a, an asteroid and, and, and touch with an asteroid. Mm. These, these things sound impossible to the layperson. <laughs> and they say, we can do that. But, but fixing all this management and getting people to work together, that seems impossible. And I always chuckle and I say, no, that's the easy part because that's all right here on Earth. We can actually go off and talk to people. They, the person in question is just down the hall. You know, it's not like a hundred million miles away somewhere and and the radio is not communicating. All you got to do is get up, walk down the hall and have a conversation and kind of figure it out. So to me, it's sort of funny that they think that's the hardest part, but that's because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. I would would never be able to figure out how to get to Mars. (laughs) They can figure out how to do that. Let me help by helping them figure out how to talk to each other and communicate so that we get to Mars in one piece. Excellent. That is the greatest job description I've ever heard. That's a uh, great job. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it just proves, as I always feel when I have conversations with you, that communication, it's just amazing what happens when one is willing to ask the question and then willing to be quiet and listen to the answers and then, you know, tweak and respond and let's give and take and let's see what the other fellow thinks and now let's bring somebody else in. I mean, I just think that's one of the greatest joys of being human. It, it certainly is. And what's interesting to me is that we actually do that. If you think of it, this whole mission of Insight to Mars is a chance to go there and listen to Mars. Yes. We're going to listen. Mars, let us hear your heartbeat. Let us hear your seismic energy. Let us 
check your magnetic field and how it varies and wobbles and doesn't behave like ours does on Earth so we can understand you. And it's not much different than what I end up doing with folks here, getting people to get together and listen to each other. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's not because they're unwilling to. It's because it's hard. It takes time. and They've got other important things to do. So you have to make it a valuable, worthwhile exercise. That's my challenge. And that's what I like trying to do. Okay. All right. Well, how about those people out there listening who would like to be involved with NASA, would like to know more about InSight and other missions? How do you best suggest maybe people who, young people in particular, who are so interested in, in, in what you are doing and all the people are doing at NASA, how do they find out more? Uh, NASA does have an internship program. It's uh, uh, heavily uh, applied for, yes. so it's a quite formal process. I, I don't have the website offhand, but if you go to the NASA website, I'm sure there's a way to find it. You apply at certain times of the year. We have student interns, high school interns, college, postgraduates. There's mm -hmm. opportunity, and, and many hundreds come every year. Uh, to different NASA centers around the, around the country. So it's very competitive, but yes, it's an opportunity. I would also argue or suggest that you can learn a lot about NASA and what we're doing. They're, they've gotten very good with, with websites. There's great websites about InSight, this NASA mission we've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. And you can learn a tremendous amount about that. And then I would find where the scientists are and what universities are working closely with NASA on missions, and I would try to go to one of those places and, and work with one of those professors hmm. or, or engineers who's working on something and learn firsthand what it's like to work on space-type missions. And there are many universities that are doing things, like with these uh, small CubeSats even, hmm. or uh, experimental missions that students can get involved with. There's rocket clubs, space clubs for younger students, uh, you know, even in middle school and high school that can get involved in uh, space and rocket challenges at numerous places around the country. I would pursue all of those because the more you understand about the, the, the nature of space and the nature of the space work, the faster it's going to be uh, enable you to connect mm -hmm. once you get an opportunity to talk with uh, folks and get closer to what we're doing. And then you find out whether that's really your passion or not because exactly. it takes – I've seen it in these people, a dedicated passion to work on something for 10, 15, even 20 years before you see a result. Uh, that, that takes a lot of passion and commitment. When did NASA come into existence? NASA was formed in 1958. Okay, because uh, th then that answers my question, because I became aware of it, like many people, I guess, when President Kennedy said, well, let's go to the moon. But I always thought, NASA must have existed in order to call out that challenge. Um, mm -hmm. How has NASA changed uh, since those days? I mean, I saw Hidden Figures. I thought it was an in incredible film on many levels. Uh, Absolutely. But, but take us out on that. Uh, how? Sure. Yeah. So, so NASA is a, a, a really interesting place. So the U.S. government did a favor to the world, really, creating NASA as a civilian space agency, mm -hmm. whereas other countries have created space agencies that were part of their military mm -hmm. or part of their defense establishment, which makes sense. Yes. But by creating a civilian agency, scientists from around the world could combine their energies toward a common goal. Mm. 
and that it really was enabled. Now, the early days of NASA, you know, the Apollo program and getting to the moon and caught up in the Cold War and space race, sure, that was all part of it. Mm -hmm. But what emerged from all of that was an agency whose dedication to discovery and learning for the really the benefit of humankind attracts people from all over the world. There are scientists even here at NASA who are from many countries around the world mm -hmm. who, who, who've come to work. And, 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 and also, there are scientists in many countries around the world working today who came and worked with NASA or studied at universities that were cooperating with NASA and went back to their own countries and are now key scientists doing work in, you know, whether it's India or Japan or other places. Wow. And so the, the, the spinoff of that move to create a civilian agency has really leveraged uh, into a huge benefit and created a unique place to work that people can sense that kind of global mission. Wow. Out of this world, as you know, I like to throw that out in all our conversations. <laughs> that is a great high point for us to uh, bid bon voyage to Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., Goddard Space Flight Center, Chief Knowledge Officer, and good friend of mine. And thank you so much, Ed. And I know it's busy and you're trying to get out of the country. <laughs> it's always good to talk to you, Marcel. <laughs> Same here. All the best to you, okay? Thank you. Thank Cheers. you for being on the show. Bye now. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Imagine that one day another planet like ours should appear on the horizon. This is the setting for the surprisingly human, spare little story of Another Earth. Driving under the influence, young would-be astrophysicist Rhoda is distracted by sighting a new planet on the horizon. She collides with another car, killing the family of John Burroughs. Years later, upon her release from prison, Rhoda seeks redemption by visiting John's home, only to find a lonely, broken man. By now, it has been determined that the new planet is part of a parallel universe, an exact duplicate of our own, even peopled by our exact twins. However, when the two worlds interact, paths begin to diverge. Could it be possible to travel to the new planet? To take up a life not yet shattered by loss? Could Rhoda find absolution by starting over? Forget the preposterous science here and even the science fiction. The more intimate focus in another Earth is on the questions we ask ourselves every day. If I could begin again and do it right, what would I do? And if I could step outside myself and take a good look, whom would I see? Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Neither past nor denial are solutions in an age with consequences. My grandmama insisted the only way to change the past is to not repeat it. I wish that was chiseled above the National Archives rather than the self-fulfilling prophecy, what is past is prologue. For what does it profit America when Americans cement red and blue, black and white, rich and poor labels on each other, if, during the ruckus, nature gains the whole world, sans us? In November 1859, The Origin of Species was published and humankind's eternal fight over who or what owns eternity erupted into our evolutionary crevasse between church and state. 
at its extremes, demanding we choose between cross and cleavage, ultimately banning the eternal truth we are. Through crusades, civil, hot, and cold war dead, denial was ensconced in Western civilization. Nonetheless, there is one thing we can do about betrayals like Nixon, government is the problem, and forever oil wars, not replace them with serial presidential treason, corporate lies, and water wars. How many mega-tornadoes, gut-wrenching earthquakes, or super-hurricanes do we need to uncloud national vision and unclog individual hearing? How often must California, its natural beauty, family homes, and American citizens burn to death before we acknowledge we've ignored our way into America's age of consequences as it follows through on eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow was never guaranteed. Strolling solo through the narrow streets in the tiny farming village of Hollenberg, Germany, sometime between Nixon's Watergate and Reagan's trickle-down, both paving the way for a trumped land, a charming farmer lady invited me into her home. This living history echoed Jimmy Stewart's Shenandoah, only the undertakers are a win in it, war that is, explaining German farmers had been the only hope to save starving World War II German soldiers walking back to a lost homecoming. But what if the farms and the farmers aren't there as we blithely allow ourselves to disengage from the reality that moneyed power pawns us off in wars for water they've fracked, air we've polluted, and food factory farms spoil? America, in the residue of Bush-Cheney, can we envision refilling our half-full glass after emptying Trump pence? Choosing to emulate violent rioters in the streets of Paris, angry over fuel prices, will prove we've learned nothing from the day-after characters playing breaking news updates as background noise the days before. When I was in college, from my 925 birthday through Thanksgiving to Christmas and New Year's, was one big celebration with friends, opera, theater, and idyllic romance. However, in this 21st century, the rush to shop, to ignore flashing red lights on school buses, and to judgment, our fate awaits just beyond our resilience to recapture our humane essence with our misplaced humanity. In 2017, I suggested my wife and I marry on Thanksgiving Day, guaranteeing I'd never forget our anniversary, not realizing that in that year, the transient holiday had navigated to November 22nd. She loved the idea, and for ten years celebrated both Thanksgiving Day and November 22nd anniversaries. Until 2018, when once again, murder wedded Thanksgiving anti-Native Americans with Dallas infamy. 23 November 2018, politicizing Nature Bats Last, Politico reported federal scientists warn in a new report Friday that changes in the climate will disrupt the economies of every region in the country in the coming years. But ignoring lessons of Black Tuesday, it didn't put a Bitcoin dent in our worship of Black Friday. 
My conversations with conservation biologist Guy McPherson, Ph.D., in 2016, 2017, and 2018, abruptly splashed the cold-water dilemma of global climate versus America's convenience addiction to over-consumerism. In my face, the facts. Embracing revelation as an invitation to value-loving peace on earth will naturally cherish all life upon it, whether for 50 years or the twinkling of a momentary enlightenment. Because tears, regrets, or looking back for what-ifs misuses what's precious. Better that our lives, whatever their duration, prove Trump-Pence administration and its critical additional offense against life on Earth is not the final definition of American character looming forever in the eternal debrief for whatever forever may be. Whether a nation that gasses women and children seeking their American dream, a people living the gospel of wealth, or perhaps even souls welcoming a new brief shining moment, passionately pursuing a life of excellence, is on us. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.